Welcome to Going Deep, Sports in the 21st Century on Blue Ridge Public Radio. I'm Dr. Marsha Mount Shoup. And I'm Coach John Shoup. John's coached at the highest levels of the game of football for 26 years. And Marsha is an author, theologian, and minister. And we're glad you've joined us to go deep into some of the most pressing issues of our time. On Going Deep, we go beyond the sound bites and highlight reels. Welcome to this episode of Going Deep, Sports in the 21st Century on Blue Ridge Public Radio. I'm Matt Bush, the producer of the program, along with John and Marsha Mountchup. And we decided to take this episode to reflect for numerous reasons, but we're going to kick it off by saying this was uh, one of the big reasons we wanted to do a bit of reflection and celebration. It's because this is episode 79 of Going Deep on Blue Ridge Public Radio. Obviously, there were episodes prior to John and Marsha and myself arriving in Western North Carolina, but there were... There are now 79 episodes that we have done here on Blue Ridge Public Radio. 79 might sound like an odd number to celebrate, but uh, for the two Yenzers on this show, 79 is a major, major year. It's not only the year I was born, but it was the year the Pirates and the Steelers both won championships, a Super Bowl and a World Series. It's the Pirates' last one. So, John, you tell me just to kick it off here how great a year 1979 was for you. It is not an overstatement to say that uh, the year 1979 changed my life. At age 10 years old, uh, I realized how important sports uh, could be in a community. And I really and truly believe that in when, when I was 10 years old, I knew that sports was going to be a major part of my life, particularly team sports for the rest of my life. I absolutely fell in love with the 1979 world champion Pittsburgh Pirates. And of course, any uh, person from Pittsburgh, a Ginger, as you call them, loves them Steelers. Marcia, do you have any fond 1979 memories? You know, I was 10 years old and living in Kentucky. And, you know, it's funny when I think about it, that's actually the year I started running competitively. So that's funny. Lots is going on that year. (laughs) (laughs) So apparently this is not only the year of championships of great smashing pumpkin song, but it's also the year that also set you guys sort of on the path to where you are right now. And that's, Mm -hmm. uh, that's pretty cool thing to, to mark as well. So yeah, we're going to reflect not only, uh, I just think on the shows that we have done here and how much some of the issues that you were talking about have evolved, not just from your time here in Western North Carolina, but also in West Lafayette and from your time in uh, professional and college football, so much has happened in those five years, but in particular, it's a good time to reflect over the last two years as we head into the third year of the COVID-19 pandemic and it's transitioning to a new phase. It's a good time, I think, to reflect on all that has happened in the last two mm-hmm. years because it has been such just a, a hurricane, a, just a blinding speed of news and events and life changes for everyone, not just for the three of us, but for everyone over the last two years. And as we were warming up to do this, I personally think all of us who have lived through this are going to spend the rest of our lives reflecting on what has happened in the past two years uh, in in the United States and the world because it has just been so transformative and not always good transformative, but just so much has happened that none of us have been able to process and really take stock of how much we have lost and how much we are grieving and how much there is for us to still go forward and do and how much I think all our resolves have been tested and are probably strengthened during this time. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting because the 
the origin of this show, this show was kind of born, you know, right before we moved here to Asheville. And that was in 2016, which was another year that was just a, a real just jolt um, in this country and multiple cultures on the globe um, with the presidential election in the United States. And that's when we when we moved here and that's when things really began to um, become more intense around questions of extrajudicial killing of black and brown people um, by police. And um, we started to really ask more collective questions around um, things like white supremacy culture. And so when John and I dreamed up this show in West Lafayette in 2016, it was kind of born in, in pain. I mean, it was, it was after a really difficult stretch there at Purdue when um, we were making some big decisions in our life about, about ending um, John's career, John's time in sports, at least for that time. And it was really emotional. It was really intense. And I think John and I both felt a real sense of purpose and call to, to have somewhere to invite a larger conversation around all the things that we were learning about around players' rights, around racism and, and um, revenue sports and collegiate settings, around the NCAA, around concussions. I mean, there was just so many issues and we both really wanted there to be a way for us to be in conversation around this in a deeper way. Um, and we felt like maybe some space was opening up for us to do that. John, what is that saying you always say from um, Upton Sinclair? It is difficult to get a man to understand something when his salary depends on his not understanding it. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, it felt like because we were making a break from our financial dependence and entanglement with the world of professional sports, that maybe some space was opening up for us to ask some questions. Um, so I feel like, the last two years have been intense, but for, for going deep, it's like this invitation to go deeper and to expand the circle and to open up the conversation and to really um, create some more um, cultural and collective dialogue around these issues through the lens of sports. That came out of our own, like, everything kind of blowing up and changing and not, and life not going the way that we had thought it would go. Um, and when I think about us getting to North Carolina, I know like you, Matt, you kind of hearing and understanding where this conversation was coming from for us was the huge part of the way this show has found a, you know, multiple conversation partners and a way to to impact the conversation too.
to me, I remember the beginning of the show in West Lafayette. And the first show that we ever did was on concussions with Tom Talavich and Eric Nauman, who've been on the show a couple of times. And kind of the genesis of the show even has its roots in public radio because it was West Lafayette's WBAA who invited us, Marcia, to a, to a dinner where Tom and Eric were given a talk on concussive studies and the work that they're doing. And, you know, at North Carolina and at Purdue, I had been butting head with administrators and coaches really over issues of due process and name, image, and likeness, which if you reflect on it now in the year of 2022, I'd like to think we were sure on the right side of history. But at, at this point, uh, I'll never forget listening to these guys talk about concussions and thinking this would be the greatest recruiting tool in the world. And as it turned out, uh, that might have been the breaking point for Morgan Burke, then the athletic director at Purdue, uh, and getting rid of me in my pushing for uh, these guys to be involved in concussive studies. And I felt like, I think we felt like this information just had to get out. We went to WBAA, who in, had invited us to this dinner, and we asked them if we could start this show. And so we started this show and our first show, uh, Tom and Eric were guests mm -hmm. on it. And we started to promote the work that they were doing uh, with regards to concussions, which I got to admit for 20 years or so while I was coaching, I was oblivious to, to a degree, maybe purposefully oblivious, you know, in some ways, but these guys really opened my eyes, and I think that changed our lives. It did. And how yeah. much since then do you think this issue has evolved? When you look back and reflect on when the show started, you've had those two engineers on a couple of times, even on our show, much less going back to when you were in the West Lafayette. You've discussed it in other shows and all that. How has that yeah. issue really evolved in football over the last six years? Because we've seen a few things happen, um, more than a few things, but I think one thing really sticks out to me is we continue to see the decline in youth football, which I think is tied to concussions and how that's going to affect further up the, uh, further up the chain. But I mean, what sorts of things when you look back and reflect over the last six, seven years with the issue of concussions, how much has changed? You know, I, I think it's really interesting because as I did reflect on 79 episodes here in Asheville and another 10 in West Lafayette, so 89 episodes overall, I thought about issues that did change. The things that did change were due process for players. Things that did change were name, image, and likeness, uh, uh, the transfer portal, things that we were advocating for in 2016, and people kind of thought we were crazy. We look at now in 2022, and we think, well, of course, that's the way it is. I mean, how could it have ever been any other way? Of all the issues, maybe concussions is the one that hasn't changed as much. You know, I, I mean, yeah, players are free to transfer now. You know, I mean, listen to the Pat and Robinette story, uh, 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 you know, uh, uh, about 
athletes getting caught with coaches who, you know, are leaving for other jobs. The transfer portals changed that uh, due process, name, image and likeness. We had a number of shows dealing with that. But concussions, mm, we're still uh, maybe not in the exact same place that we were in 2016, but it hasn't evolved as quickly uh, as yeah. some other things, including even, you know, the, the uh, legalization of uh, cannabis, uh, uh, which mm. we did a wonderful show on with Heather Jackson and, and Jake Plummer as well. Yeah. I, I think that's one we're falling behind. I mean, the interesting thing, I think, with concussions is um, I remain just as baffled as I was. Like, I really, 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 really thought, I really believed that this was just going to be the greatest thing ever. <laughs> you know, we, we organized a big event in, um, in, in West Lafayette, and I invited the, the university to partner with us on it. I just thought this is a great opportunity for Purdue, for the football program, for the athletic program, for the engineering department it just felt like a no-brainer no pun intended it just really felt like i just couldn't imagine why it wouldn't be something that people would want to grab onto. and i remember the discussion with morgan burke at the time and he was my my book touchdowns for jesus was out he had read it he said he liked it and, but one of the things he expressed a real concern about was that we were tethering these issues of concussions and players' rights. That somehow we, we needed to just talk about concussions and and protocols and, and checklists and medical, you know, medical policies and things like that. But we couldn't tether it to, to players' rights. And I just continue to think, like, you can't talk about one without the other. Because the thing about the concussions discussion is when people only want to talk about what we do after somebody gets a concussion, they are totally ignoring this whole dynamic that we're seeing more and more clearly that it's not just about people who get concussions. It's about long-term health outcomes and it's about decreased life expectancy. It's about CTE. It's about the quality of life. It's about mental health. It's about the wellness of human beings after they play these sports and especially football. And so you, you can't really talk about concussions without talking about players' rights. You just really can't do it or you're not talking about concussions. So I, I, I still think that's an issue, even though there is movement and these other categories and metrics around rights. I still think people are struggling to think about what it means to really, really have a social contract with revenue athletes in college that centers their wellness and their well-being 
I, I still think that's tough for people to talk about. And I, I just want to say, when you, as I listen to you talk, and we'll do something that the show is always good at, is taking an issue like that and taking it to larger American society. When I heard you talk, I hear mm-hmm. the tethering and the why are we tethering these mm-hmm. issues, but they are tethered, whether we want to admit it or not. They absolutely mm-hmm. are of healthcare and labor. Yeah. Healthcare and labor. And look at COVID. I mean, it is, again, this is... It's like the issues we were talking about in 2016 have only just become more and more intensified and there are more and more iterations of like, there it is, there it is over there. Oh, there it is over there. Oh, there it is over there. You know, I think one of the most powerful episodes that we had, one of the ones that just touched me and I still sit with it so much is the Maurice Claret show when we, when we spent time with Maurice and this is something that was happened happening 20 something years ago, the Maurice Claret story. And I think what, what it marked time for me, for us to spend time with Maurice, to remember the narrative that I bought hook, line and sinker about him back in the day about that. He had broken rules and he was a, renegade and he was a problem person and you know it was all his fault you know is what I that's the that's kind of narrative I had and it really marked my own transformation my own learning and growth curve to talk to Maurice and realize like all the issues that I'm finally waking up to completely changed his life, almost ruined his life, almost cost him his life. And I was, I was oblivious. I was convinced of a different narrative. I think that that's the kind of show that I hope our listeners have listened to. And it had the same kind of like seismic, like, like flip it. It's, it's not what you think. It's not what you thought. Open up your mind and let those kind of um, biases, the, the things that just confirm the confirmation biases you listen for in your life, let that be disrupted because we've been really wrong about this stuff. We've been really wrong about it. And I encourage all our listeners, if you want to go back and listen to any of the shows that we're referencing today, you can do so at BPR.org with the free BPR mobile app or with Apple or Google Podcasts. You're listening to Going Deep Sports in the 21st Century on Blue Ridge Public Radio. And we're going to be back right after this short break. Welcome back to Going Deep Sports in the 21st Century on Blue Ridge Public Radio. I'm Matt Bush, talking with the host of the program, and we're going back over some issues to try to reflect on how some of the things that this show has talked about in its time, both in Western North Carolina and West Lafayette, uh, how much they have evolved. And we've been talking about concussions, and that's one that maybe hasn't really evolved much, sadly, and really that touched on you know the how healthcare and labor are tethered together, and how there are a lot of people who don't want to tell you how healthcare and labor are tethered together, but they are. And 
that's one of the things I think John and Marsha are so successful at is showing how all these issues connect together and fit a larger uh, fit larger issues within American culture and society. And we do want to talk about NIL and players' rights and 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 how that has evolved in your time. And that has changed pretty significantly as we're going back through some earlier episodes that were done here, even just three or four years ago. Not saying they sound dated; they're fantastic. But the time, the discussions you were having then with those players or former players and what players now get to see is vastly different. I mean, our show on locker room, locker room stuff, our show, I think some of our shows with, with Kevin Blackstone and Ramogi Huma and, um, you know, Bomani Jones and Deb Stroman. I mean, we've had so many great guests here that have helped us to unpack so many of the issues. I mean, Andy Schwartz, the sports economist, just helping us unpack what's really going on with the economy of sports. And we had heard so much negativity or so much trepidation about NIL that it was going to fundamentally change and ruin a lot of things. Well, we're kind of going through the first full collegiate sports year of there being NIL. Name, image, likeness, players in college can now make money off of that. Heading into Final Four weekend, when people are hearing this, it does not seem to have ruined the college sports season in any way. No, I don't think it has. <laughs> there's, there's still people filling up those stadiums. You know, it, in, in October of 2017 is when we did that episode. It was called Recruiting Arms Race. And I remember I called probably two dozen uh, athletes uh, that I had coached from, you know, Rocket Ishmael, a Heisman Trophy winner to, you know, just backups at North Carolina and Texas football. The University of Texas had just invested in a new locker room and they invested. Listen to this. Ten thousand dollars in each individual locker, not just in the whole locker room, but one hundred and twenty lockers at ten thousand dollars a piece. And if you remember on that show, I asked each one of them, uh, would you rather have uh, just a little bit of money in your pocket so you could uh, fill your car up with gas and drive home on the weekend or you could go out on a date? And every single player, every single one, 100 percent said, we don't need a slide in our uh, 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 rec- in our uh, football office. We don't need big screen TVs. We don't need pool tables, all these other things. Uh, we'd rather have some money in our pocket so we can get food when we're not at the uh, 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 dining table. Uh, we can go out on our own on a date. Uh, we can go home when we need to go home. We could do laundry, things like that. And since 2017, the world's been turned upside down. And I'd like to think that Marsh and I have had a hand in pushing the needle uh, in that direction. You know, and listening back to, uh, you know, shows from that year as well. I mean, when you talk about the Maurice Claret uh, episode, uh, like Marsha, I just thought Maurice Claret was the bad guy. And in our show, I've really found that 
some people that I thought were the bad guys are actually the good guys, you know, be it Sonny Vaccaro, who we interviewed, uh, you know, uh, uh, and was the first guy to give uh, money to players for uh, uh, Nike. Uh, and sign players to endorsements. And Maurice, if you remember, he he was only guilty of, if you want to call it guilt, two infractions when he was a junior in high school. A, a booster gave him a cell phone so the coaches at Ohio State could recruit Maurice. He didn't ask him for a cell phone. He gave it to him. And so instead of that just being one violation, uh, every month that that booster paid the bill, uh, which was for like 30 straight months, the NCAA counted that as a violation. So you read uh, Maurice Claret had 30 violations. And then he told us the story. The only other thing that was against the rules was when his car broke, he took it to the mechanic to get fixed. And he said, I'm 19 years old. And the mechanic said, here, while we fix your car, you drive this one around. And every single day that he was driving the car that the mechanic had lent him, a guy that he knew uh, counted as a violation. And so when he was frustrated saying, when you look in the paper and it says Maurice Claret has 90 violations, I really only had two violations and both of them. I didn't even know I was violating a rule. And yet he was disowned by Ohio State. And it's not just Ohio State. I think one of the episodes that really makes you cringe uh, was when we were talking to Jimmy King and Ray Jackson of the Fab Five. Uh, and these guys, if you remember the Fab Five of Jawan Howard, Chris Weber, you know, uh, Jalen Rose, uh, uh, Jimmy King and Ray Jackson, these guys changed the world of uh, 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 college sports. They really did. There were five freshmen that started uh, all in the same year and went to the NCAA championship. And uh, 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 Jimmy and Ray were telling us that here they're making millions upon millions upon millions of dollars. And if you remember on that show, and, and I think that show was back in 2007 or 2000. Uh, September of 2017, uh, they said they had their electricity turned off and Jimmy's dad had to come up from Texas to help them uh, move because they couldn't afford to pay their electricity. And here, every single person is making millions off the work that they're doing. If those guys were in college today, could you imagine the NIL contracts that they'd be signing and certainly uh, wouldn't be having their electricity turned off? On the day we recorded this, a player for St. Peter's, which is a team who were 15 seed, uh, the first, the third 15 seed to, to advance to the Sweet 16. They defeated Kentucky in the first round. Sorry, Marcia. But a guard <laughs> for that team, Doug Eddert, announced on Instagram he had signed a name-image likeness deal with Buffalo Wild Wings amid the team's success. 
that wouldn't have happened if St. Peter's not won those games. And all of a sudden, everyone, and not everyone, but I think a lot of people in college sports now knows where even St. Peter's is. It's in Jersey City across the river from from mm-hmm. Manhattan. And it became this big deal. And there's also a photo of him. And I want to talk about this because this is something I learned through knowing you two, um, that this was such a big issue with college players. There's a photo of him when he is announcing this. And it's Buffalo Wild Wings. And in the photo, he's got boxes of wings and fries in front of him food for athletes he is now i'm sure part of the name image likeness maybe he gets free meals at this place or any a number of other players can get free meals at this place i only bring this up because i didn't realize the struggle that was for players until i met you and heard the stories and some of the absolute horror stories of players not having food not having clothing and these are people on saturdays or sundays or whatever day of the week playing in front of thousands of people making those universities millions of dollars because john you told me a story you uh, of a player you had at purdue that was starving during spring break and to me these were things that i didn't know and i felt horrible that i didn't know them and how awful this is that we have institutions that have created these situations yeah when we started at purdue in 2013 at that time the cost of a scholarship didn't cover a cost of living and I'd like to think that Marsha and I helped push the needle to get players a, a stipend that would cover a cost of living, which collegiate athletes now have, but they didn't when we started at Purdue. And one of the issues that I kept bringing up to our administration was uh, we had two athletes on our team uh, from Europe, uh, uh, an offensive lineman from Sweden and uh, a wide receiver from France. And when we went on spring break, uh, these two players didn't have enough money uh, to go home. And so they stayed uh, in their, they were in off-campus housing, so they stayed in their off-campus housing. But because it was spring break, all of the cafeterias uh, were closed. And as it just so happened, you know, we were at a softball game. The softball team was still playing over spring break or uh, 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 one of the days on the edges of spring break. And uh, one of the players was there. And uh, after the game, he was waiting for the girl softball team to come out of the locker room because they were bringing him food uh, that they're team had had because he hadn't had any food he had just eaten skittles uh for like a day and a half and so we certainly bought him food there the game and everything which was an ncaa violation but is certainly the right thing to do and then our offensive lineman was from sweden and uh at the beginning of spring break, I can't remember exactly what it was, but his weight was like at 300 pounds. And at the end of spring break, you know, uh, uh, seven days and then two days on the edge, what, nine or 10 days later, his weight was down to like 276. And I remember some of the coaches and the strength coaches were getting on him and stuff like that. And I had recruited the guy and uh, I asked him what's what's going on. And he said, I haven't eaten anything, you know, <laughs> I've been eating scraps for, you know, 10 days. I didn't have the money to go home. And I was I was horrified. And so, you know, we really at that point started advocating hard for students to not just 
have tuition and books paid for, but a cost of living allowance, which, uh, like I said, I'm not sitting here saying uh, that we're the reason that happened, but we sure did push the needle in that direction. And those were two examples that, uh, you know, we stood up and advocated for those uh, uh, guys, both of whom I love. A, a lot of our awakening was not at Purdue, though. It was at UNC. And so, you know, anybody who listens to Going Deep has heard, you know, a lot of that story of UNC and the scandal there and talk about something that has evolved, you know, where that started and then where it kind of moved into in a more an academic scandal. And then it, you know, just how that has morphed and and changed um collegiate athletics and the NCAA in some ways. That was our real break for us when we kind of started to realize not only some of the stories John's telling that happened at Purdue, some of those things happened at UNC too, but also the the racialized aspects of it, um, as Taylor Branch calls it, the plantation the plantation ethic that kind of um, informs the way revenue athlete athletics works in sports. And we've, we've had the opportunity to have several different academics, journalists, um, advocates come and help our listeners unpack. How is this? So how, how did it get this way? Why is it this way from, from Randall Balmer's, you know, discussion of the different origin stories of the major sports in the United States and how they mirror culture and the way they change, how those, how that mirrors culture to Joe Nacera, who used to write for the New York Times and the questions he brought to bear on the NCAA. We've had a container for our listeners to unpack some of these issues that really start to reframe the way we relate to some of our cultural icons, not just people, but institutions, our, our alma maters, our, our sports heroes, our, the coaches that get paid millions and millions of dollars, how we can start to bring a different kind of analysis to the way we relate to those things. And I think we, we, we would be remiss if we didn't name that we've also brought to bear these questions around framing and analysis to the way religion shows up in sports. Um, and we've had several wonderful guests come and talk with us about that too, like Tom Krattenmaker um, around most muscular Christianity. We had a great show with TJ Yates where we talked about the power dynamics and the way um, FCA takes up space. And just recently, our last show, Talk about how something has evolved. I mean, look at look at, at Christian athlete circles, a real, a new unfolding, a new budding movement for athletes to have a broader palette for their spiritual journeys, not just one brand of Christianity, but a bigger, a bigger brand of Christianity that offers people all at all different places on their journey, a way to connect as athletes. So 
I feel like religion has been another place where we've been able to go deeper, maybe tell people about things they weren't, they had no idea was happening on college campuses, some of the campuses where they were giving their money to support these campuses and these teams, and they weren't aware of how some of these power dynamics were playing out. That's some of the more rewarding work for me is when we can help people get in right relationship around the way they relate to things and people and issues. I hope we've done that at least for some some people around some issues. You're listening to Going Deep Sports in the 21st Century from Blue Ridge Public Radio. We'll be back in just a moment. Thanks for joining us. And welcome back to Going Deep Sports in the 21st Century from Blue Ridge Public Radio. I'm Matt Bush, the producer of the program, along with John and Marsha Mount Chuper joining me today. And we're doing a lot of reflecting here on the show and really what has happened in the past two years, six years, 10 years, 15 years uh, throughout um, America and college sports being a very large part of that. And John, you wanted to make a point, I think, on what Marsha was saying there before. I'll move on to the next thing I wanted to discuss with you guys. I remember... When Andy Schwartz, an economist from the Bay Area, was on with us, and he was talking about antitrust and price fixing uh, with regards to college sports. And I remember thinking to myself, this is all going to fall apart sooner rather than later, college sports, because the law is not on their side. This idea of amateurism, which these college administrators kept holding up as the bedrock of college sports. Andy just helped me see with antitrust and price fixing. And Andy can be a wonky guy and he could talk. He could take the whole hour. But if you really listen to him, you're like, it, it's so clear that the law is in favor of we're America. People are allowed to make money from their own name image and likeness. And then another guest that we've had on the show is former North Carolina Supreme Court Justice Bob Orr, who has walked with us, really, Marcia, you know, through the scandal at North Carolina, uh, Chapel Hill and the athletic program there. And he, too, just really helped me see that, you know, sometimes when everybody is telling you you're crazy, everybody's telling you this is the way it is. You just don't understand. But some really smart people like Andy, you know, uh, uh, like uh, Bob Orr, and then really smart people like Maurice. It's really helped me kind of get through it sometimes to hear other people saying, yeah, we kind of see it how you do as well. And lo and behold, college football, college sports in general, you know, just in the six years we've been doing this show has been turned on its ear. And as I said, I'm glad. Really? Turned on its ear? In many regards, with regards oh. to name, image, and likeness, with regards to the transfer portal. But they're uh, still making a lot of money. I don't know if it's been turned on its ear. Well, players are making money as well, or at least allowed to make money as well. So yeah. things have changed. Yeah. 
a great insight to those who listen to the show right now. John and Marcia don't always agree on everything. <laughs> As the producer of the program, I know it very, very well, but I'm glad now the listeners maybe have a very clear example of Matt's this. Matt's got a lot sometimes of Sometimes Matt are, is Matt's our marriage of, counselor. Yeah, he's got a lot of titles, <laughs> therapist and counselors, one of them. Two of them. Well, I, I do want to go into this. I want to talk about race and how you guys talk about it on the show. And this isn't to pick on this particular uh, university, but it's the one that you have personal experience with. And it is one where we live here in the state of North Carolina and Western North Carolina. We are surrounded by graduates of the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. This is true of any major university. Well, it's true of any university in the United States. I would say that there are these issues of talking about race and how racism, structural racism shows up in the universities and how you experienced it when you were there during the academic scandal. You did two fantastic episodes with Bob Orr, who you referenced here earlier. You have talked about it so much. I think it has informed what happened to you there, how much it has informed the show and yourselves and your experiences and how you talk about it going forward. I would say that would seem like it's correct. The racism you saw throughout that scandal that came from that institution. Yes. And I would say that, I mean, I have been a student of race, like studying it as academically also involved in the issue as an activist for almost all of my life, really. I mean, I grew up in an academic household. My dad is an ethicist and a theologian. And so we, we often talked about these issues. My dad was the only white person who belonged to the NAACP in my little town in, in Danville, Kentucky. And so the issue of race and the injustices that black and brown people have to deal with day in and day out in this country, that wasn't new ish. That wasn't new information to me at all. And even in my master's and PhD work, race was a lens, a, an area of study, a way that I kind of maneuvered my way around different issues. I think what shifted for me in North Carolina is that I had always thought of collegiate sports, especially revenue sports, as a pathway to opportunity to um, to transformation for black and brown people, like that that was one pathway that was was there for them. Um, that uh, that and that's one of the reasons we left the NFL to go to college football is we felt like there was a higher purpose. They weren't. It wasn't just a business. They could get an education, and that and I was very um, steeped in that kind of bias around that if you can just get an education, um, that all of these problems can, you know, can be mitigated. And I think what I realized at UNC was, number one, it's not the education that you think it is, that they're getting, number one, even at a place like North Carolina, it's, they're not above all the shenanigans in terms of how players are maneuvered around the curriculum so that they make sure they stay eligible and don't really take the classes. They don't really let players take classes that they want to take a lot of the time. So that was the first thing I really thought that 
that that was only like a few schools that weren't serious academic institutions. The second thing I realized was that this wasn't a pathway of opportunity as much as it was a place where the deeply entrenched patterns of whiteness and supremacy just became more entrenched. In other words, this was a place where stereotypes were confirmed for people. This is a place where um, people, where black and brown students and players were still having to assimilate and capitulate to white ways of doing things in order to just get a little shred of what other people were getting. And I think that those were the two things I learned. I knew there were overt racist people everywhere. So that part was gross to see so up close at UNC, but I, but you kind of know that exists. I think those more subtle, stealthy things that I had kind of, I had really bought the facade of, of this academic opportunity. That's when really everything kind of changed for me. Um, and it wasn't that I was just waking up to the way racism works or the way systemic racism works. It was the way it was that I was waking up to the way collegiate sports is a major colluder in keeping white supremacy going strong in our country instead of a disruptor of that. And I think I do want to just go one bit on that. You, you've always said, and it's something that's really illuminated me during the time I produced the show of how much the NCA is an organization, but it's the member institutions yeah. that really run everything. Mm -hmm. And I say, just wanted to touch on that because you're saying college athletics, this showed up in, but you know, 10 or 11 years after you guys were no longer at Chapel Hill last year, the Nicole Hannah Jones tenure controversy happened there. Still there. And it seemed like a lot of the same exact things you talked about that happened there showed right back up at that university. And again, it isn't a pick on it, but it is one that was right in front of, you know, we live here. It's yeah. such a major part of the state. It's right there it's in front right of there. us and it's not changed. And it's some of the same people and it's some of the same things they're saying. And, and UNC, unfortunately, isn't unique in the way these, these dynamics show up. You know, as a child of an academic, as somebody who grew up in an academic household, both my parents were college professors, you know, and, and Presbyterians. I mean, we have forged this country. We've, we've been some of the ones that founded the university system in this country that Presbyterians founded UNC Chapel Hill, <laughs> you know? Um, and so academics has always been this container of virtue and opportunity and even racial reconciliation. And, and so the, the upending of, of my self-concept and my whole understanding of the way I need to move as a white person that is working toward transformation and healing is it took the kind of disintegrating of that, of that um, mythology that I had around academic communities that that 
they were different, that they were better. Throughout the show, we've had some amazing writers and personalities like Bomani Jones, Kevin Blackstone, Dr. Joseph Cooper, uh, who was at UConn at the time, was amazing. Ramogi Huma, uh, who has been leading the charge for college athletes. Dr. Deb Stroman, who is at UNC Chapel Hill. There was a lot of people we had uh, on the show. I think Deb yep. Stroman was at Chapel Hill. And uh, didn't uh, well, you just said that? And but Bomani did his. When we were at Chapel Hill. And Joey Cooper, too. But yeah. Mm-hmm. But it, it was a, it was a year ago, really, uh, uh, this episode in, in the April of 2021 uh, that a man named Russell Dinkins kind of helped me see even clearer how stealth racism really is on collegiate campuses. And it was one of my favorite episodes uh, 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 uh Russell Dinkins, I think the episode was called Not So Fast, um, because Russell was advocating uh, to get men's track and field teams reinstated uh, at universities that had uh, eliminated them uh, as a cost cutting measure. And he did it at Brown University. He did it at the University of Minnesota. He led the charge uh, at Clemson uh, right here in our neck of the woods. And his argument was so crystal clear to me that this was an avenue that brings people of color into this institution. And we're shutting this down to support tennis, baseball, uh, 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 field hockey, which nobody, I'm not here to say those aren't meaningful sports, but there were sports that Russell helped me understand were clearly dominated by white people from upper class uh, uh, backgrounds. And I thought Russell was one of the more illuminating guests that we had. And he really helped open my eyes to, I think the word you used, Marsh, was stealth, the stealthiness of racism on campus. Because at first glance, it's reasonable to say, okay, we need to eliminate some sports. You know, what are we going to eliminate? But he really helped me see son of a gun. The first one to go in so many places was the one that really uh, uh, recruited people of color to the school. Yeah. Very interesting show. Well, and the, I mean, one of the interesting things about Russell Dinkins too is is he was a collegiate athlete. He brought that experience and a analysis of race and power and the way it works in athletic departments to his activism. I mean, that's one of the reasons he was so effective. He really, and is, continues to be so effective, is that he brings firsthand experience, but also a real a real sophisticated analysis around the way race and power work on college campuses. He's He has turned the tide at some very different kinds of institutions. Ivy League to, you know, big time, Sports in the deep south in the SEC, yeah. Clemson's not an easy place, yeah. Clemson's not an easy place to change things around, I would imagine. He did. 
as we kind of culminate this time of reflection, I would like to take a minute to to say what a gift it is to have community, collaboration, and also just someone to witness along with you to these issues. And I, and I really want to share my gratitude with you, Matt, for for the ways that you've come along with us on going deep to to witness to our own experience, also to share your experience and your questions. And I have felt a lot of freedom um, and affirmation from you that you really that you really wanted to let us do our thing in a way that that centered these questions that have changed our lives. You know, John, this isn't all abstract to us. This is, this is our lives and our lives have changed profoundly and radically. There's been a lot of grief, a lot of loss as we've made decisions along the way in our lives around how we are connected to sports and how our livelihood is connected to sports. And for instance, the John Gruden show, you know, that we did the, the John Gruden experience. Matt, you really trusted us. (laughs) I think I said something like, I don't know what it's going to be like, but it's just going to be me and John talking about John Gruden, (laughs) but not really about John Gruden. It's going to be, and, and I, and John didn't really know what it was going to be like either. And I feel like that's what I mean by what, what can happen creatively when you have someone who is collaborating and saying yes and and witnessing to to what you're trying to do it really does it makes us all better and i'm really grateful for that matt well i want to express my gratitude to you first for saying that much appreciated and and secondly um that episode in particular i mean, i'd heard this you guys tell the stories of that before um and that's one reason I trust you, obviously, with everything, you know, and so does the station, too. We should know that, too. It isn't just me. I'm one of 20 people. But I think what really got me that was I knew how vulnerable that would be for you, particularly for you, John, to share your experiences there. Um, and as I edited that episode after you'd sent it over to me, and that's kind of how these things go for people who want to know how this proverbial sausage is made. John and Marsha most times are recording their interviews and they send them to me and I edit, edit them together and at the little music breaks and things like that. But it was one of those, as I was listening to that, as I edited it, um, it was a bit jaw-dropping for me because it was like, they're really going to start telling these things that I thought they were never going to really tell. I mean, they were really, really explosive, difficult, vulnerable things to share. To me, that was an inspiration that you both would be so open with that. And I know our listeners reflected that too, because of all the episodes we've done here that I've, you know, gotten the feedback on that one got the most, and that one got the most of people saying, wow, I never was able to make these connections that way. You spoke to me in a way, and it was to me, it was just very refreshing. You guys talk about so many things so great, but at a time where this really needs to happen more and more, and it's talking about race and white people talking about race. And you guys, the way you do it, you will lead, not just me, but I hope you lead so many other people in white people in being able to discuss race in such an open way, a vulnerable way, and a way that really invites us all to reflect on the mistakes, the transgressions that we have kind of had in our lives and the unintended, um, it's not consequences, but the impact impact that this had and us not knowing it because we didn't take the time. In many cases, we were never given the time and the knowledge to know 
of what our actions are doing. And that episode of all the ones you've done, I could tell you all my favorite ones, but that one to me really stuck out just because of both of you being so brave and vulnerable to share it. Thank you, Matt. Thank Thank you, you. Matt. Yeah. Thank you for everything from the bottom of my heart. Thank you for everything. And thank you for yeah. everything, too, for both of you. You have been more than just people I work with and produce a show with your friends, your people I seek counsel from. And um, of anything that has happened in my time here, I, I may be most grateful that I somehow ended up getting paired with the both of you and getting to <laughs> come on the journey of the show with you. So thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you, Matt. You truly have helped helped us. You have supported us and you have created the conditions for us to really really go deep we couldn't have done it without you and it's good to have another pirates fan in western (laughs) north carolina let's go bucks couple years they'll be back john couple years maybe even less You've been listening to Going Deep, sports in the 21st century, from the studios of Blue Ridge Public Radio, NPR for Western North Carolina. Tell us what you think of the show by emailing us at goingdeep at bpr.org. Make sure to like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Shoops Going Deep. <laughs>